Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, February 12th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So this is a weekend that for some people can be a little bit tough. It's the big Valentine's Day. My wife is actually away, so I'm solo for the first time in a and a number of Valentine's Days. Oh, see, I just helped my husband out. I, I ordered my favorite tulips for myself. Uh, so <laughs> charged it to him. So yeah, it's great Valentine's Day for me. Uh, but I know a lot of my friends either love or hate this day, right? Uh, and so I've been looking forward to this episode for months, because back in the fall, I was pitched by a publicist for a major publishing house about this book. And I basically said to her, I'm sorry, but this needs to wait until Valentine's Day. <laughs> what is this book about? I have been sitting on this book for months, and it's called Sex in the Sea. Like there's many fish out there in the sea, the probabilistic nature of us finding love? Like, basically, there's a lot of sex happening in our waters. You mean in the ocean? In the ocean. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and all kinds of different ways that sex is happening, and there are all kinds of different challenges that fish face. And if you think you have it bad here on terrestrial Earth, think about if you're a fish and you need to find a mate in the vastness of the ocean. I guess if you're called a sperm whale, it puts a lot of extra pressure on you. So you <laughs> that get too, it. that too. So it's a really, really funny book. Um, she's she's done a great job writing it. And by she, I mean, Dr. Mara Hart. She's the research co-director for the nonprofit Future of Fish. She's a coral reef ecologist by training. And she's a former research fellow at the Blue Ocean Institute. She's, you know, a working scientist. She's working in the field. And she's also very, very funny. Well, I look forward to learning about all the randy fish in the sea. So yes, whether you hate Valentine's Day or love Valentine's Day, I hope you enjoy this episode because it really does have a little something for everybody. 
So that's our interview for today. But first, there's some pretty big news in science this week. Whoop! Whoop! Do you think that that's what they sound like? I, I was just chirping for LIGO. That's like there's this whole um, Twitter um, hand, uh, hashtag going out with all these physicists do it, trying to imitate the sound they think the LIGO detector made when it detected gravitational oh, waves because like, it's an audible sound. It was like close to a C. You should be the wow. one doing this. Well, which C? There's lots of them. Uh, I don't know. I'm not the musician of the two of us. <laughs> but there are reasons to celebrate today. Yeah. I mean, people are talking about Nobel Prizes, but more than that... This discovery of, or the first, I should say, observation of gravitational waves. That's what we're talking about, right? The first observation of gravitational waves. Yeah, I think there's two interesting things. First of all, this has gotten incredible attention. Even the president tweeted out a congratulation to the National Science Foundation and the researchers involved. So, Oh, well, he tweeted me when I had my... No, he didn't. No, he didn't. (laughs) I think there's two achievements here. It's like, one... This is such a validation of general relativity. It's such a fundamental principle here. So like when we have these hugely massive objects coming together and creating these ripples in space time, now we have an observation of them uh, continuing. Actually, two the first two papers that are cited uh, with the paper that came out today were by Albert Einstein. How freaking cool is that? <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, so I think that's one. And, and for that, it... it you know, the the ramifications are many, but it's really just confirmation for a lot of different work that's been going on. It may extend to inflation in terms of how the Big Bang was formed. Gravitational waves are a big part of that. But where I think the real interesting thing is, is how they detected it. They actually set up the, the LIGO detectors themselves are probably the more interesting story. They set up a detector in Louisiana and one in Washington and basically shown a laser down this hugely long pathway and looked for some very microscopic uh, perturbations in that laser that would happen if a wave passed through it. Tracking back the perturbation that actually led to this sort of discovery. Wait, but so that's it? It's not even pointed to the sky? No, no. It's like deep underground. Whoa. It's pretty, it's pretty fascinating um, how sensitive this detector was. Nothing this sensitive exists on Earth at this point. And they're essentially using Earth as part of the detection sort of methodology here by placing it underground. But how, you know, we're talking about this like one little blip of a noise that they heard really briefly as being so monumental. It originated 1.3 billion years ago when two black holes merged together. 1.3 billion years ago. Like, are there, is there, there's barely life on this planet 1.3 billion years ago when this happened. And it's so energetic. Uh, here's an analogy that I heard today. The power released from those black holes merging is more than all of the energy of the visible matter in the universe. What? Yeah, it's an incredible <laughs> amount of power that was emitted from uh, from these black holes merging. Wow. I mean, it's 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 so insane. And the fact that we can build a detector for large-scale phenomenon like that, I think, is really fascinating. And it potentially has, has ramifications for future astronomical detection projects. So that's what I think I find really cool about it. Not so much... I mean, I, I kind of expected that we were going to find gravitational waves. You know, they've been... You know, oh, we, you're so ho-hum about this. Come on. <laughs> kind of. But what I'm excited about is the fact that we've now developed this technology that can 
do this. And so my question is like, what, how, what are we going to learn from having developed this technology that's going to change our immediate lives? To change our, I mean, we're talking about fundamental physics, so it doesn't really know, change but, our. You know, it's like life. people were talking about this is akin to Galileo, you know, to the invention of the telescope and seeing, you know, for the first are, time. So we are talking about general relativity, like one of the what five most important scientific theories, uh, like in all time. It's hard to create a listicle about that, but you know, it so is someone's pre- doing it, it is pretty important. So there is that. Two, I mean, we're talking about really big phenomena. So if we're talking about understanding other black hole interactions in a pretty big way, supernova, uh, we're really talking about this in in the context of the Big Bang, though. We're talking about really gigantic events and phenomena in the universe, and now having an observational methodology for, um, for detecting components of that work. Well, I'm just waiting for someone to make an app. I can see this for myself, but maybe I'll be waiting for a while. (laughs) So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Mara Hart. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. There's lots of books up there that relate to our previous and recent podcasts, like you can get The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley by last week's guest, Eric Weiner, or Why We Snap, Understanding the Rage Circuit in Your Brain by R. Douglas Fields, or The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor by Mark Schatzker. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mara Hart. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So this is our Valentine's Day episode. So we're going to talk a lot about sex. Fantastic. Uh, You know, Valentine's Day is one of those holidays that people either love or hate, right? Mm -hmm. But it looks like the ocean is full of fish that, you know, have figured out many different ways of getting it on. And so maybe we can learn something from them. Absolutely. There, there's somebody out there in the ocean doing it pretty much any time of day or night, all the time, every day. (laughs) All right. So... Let's start with one of the major problems in the ocean that, you know, a lot of our listeners might be able to relate to. And that's, it's sometimes hard to find someone to do it with. (laughs) This is true, Uh, especially because the oceans are about 99% of the living habitat on Earth. So... To find a date or a mate in all that blue is can be a big challenge. And animals have come up with all sorts of different tactics in order to do so, from the smallest to the largest. So wait, that's that's kind of an amazing figure, 99%. So that means that of all the habitable space on Earth, the vast majority of it is in water or in the oceans? It's in the oceans. And that's because of the huge amount of depth, right? The oceans are a 3D habitat. And we get a little of that on land with, you know, something like a forest where you can live up in the treetops and kind of in the middle and the bottom. But really, once you get into the air, there's there's nobody, you know, up there really taking advantage of all that space. Whereas in the oceans, it's full from bottom, you know, to top. So that means if I'm a little fish... <laughs> <laughs> I not only have to worry about, you know, finding someone in the horizontal sort of space, spatial direction, but also up and down. 
Yeah. And so imagine you're a blue whale, for example, biggest animal to live on Earth. But in the oceans, you're still a very, very small little dude swimming around, and you could be swimming over some potential mates and and not even know it uh, unless you, you know, employ some certain tactics to help you kind of hone in on who else is out there and who might be willing to engage with you. So let's start with the blue whale, the biggest animal on our planet. And, you know, there aren't that many of them, right? Correct. They're coming back, though, which is good. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. So if I'm a blue whale, uh, how often do I mate and how do I find someone? So it's a really good question in terms of how often. I think that's still something researchers are trying to figure out. Blue whales are different than some of the other species that uh, folks might be more familiar with, such as humpback whales, who gather yearly to mate on aggregation grounds. So they go to mating grounds. It's a known location once a year, and they all get it on. So that's like speed dating. That's like speed dating. Yep. Okay. And with blue whales, it's different. The males literally have to roam around the entire ocean basin trying to find these groups of females who are also roving around. So I think most females, because they have long reproductive cycles, kind of like us, they're probably only mating once every one to two to three years. And sperm whales, it's every five to eight years per, you know, for one female. So it's a really long cycle. So for these males, it's, it's hard to find a female. And it's hard to find a female who is receptive and at the point where she can actually get pregnant. Wait, so if you're a sperm whale, you can go five to eight years without having sex? For the females, yeah. They'll... But what about the males? I mean, do they do they is it kind of a one to one thing or are they No, the males the males will be trying to get it on with however many females they can find as often as possible. Do we know how successful they are? Well, they are somewhat successful. Um, but I think this is again, this is an area that we really don't know that much about. Nobody's ever seen two sperm whales mating. Nobody's ever seen two blue whales mating. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's so how do we know what they do? <laughs> So some of it comes from their anatomy, understanding their um, their different proportions. So what's really, really cool studies that you can do, and this happens for all animals, when a male has a particularly large set of testes, right, so giant cojones, it tends to indicate that they're producing a lot of sperm, and there's a reason for that, right? Sperm takes energy to make. Why would you make so much? We think that it's when you're in a system where you're competing, where a female is mating in close succession with many males. And basically what happens is her reproductive track becomes a battleground. And those sperm are not only racing each other to get to the egg, but they're having to race against other male sperm. And for a male, the best thing or one of the best tactics that you can use to try to win that battle is to just produce copious amounts of sperm so that when you mate with that female, you are flooding her her tract, pushing all the other wigglers out of the way and getting your guys up as far as you can towards the cervix and the egg. So we see this in, in some whale species where we know there's a lot of competition going on. Best example of that is like North Atlantic right whales. They're very endangered. There's only about 300 left, but they're also extremely frisky. And they mate all year round, even when we know the females can't, we don't think, can be getting pregnant because they all birth at the same time of year. So there's a certain cycle like us. It takes a certain amount of time. So if they're all birthing at the same time, it's likely that they can only get pregnant in a certain window. They're still having sex year round. So is, is that some evidence that those animals are enjoying it? Well, you know, (laughs) this is where there's some fuzzy lines. We know in dolphin species that they do have sex all sorts of ways, any which way, with male males and with juveniles, where 
definitely reproduction is not the purpose. And it's likely that this is some sort of uh, social dominance. It's a way for them to establish kind of rank within the group. With the whales, I, you know, to be honest, I don't know. With right whales, I have not heard um, or spoken to anyone who has mentioned that that's sort of the the intention is for dominance. Instead, it really does look like they're just playing and frolicking and enjoying this. And, and by dominance, you're being a little polite. You mean rape. Um, yeah. In <laughs> okay. some cases, right. it's definitely aggressive, for sure. Okay. Um, in dolphins, especially the male male, it can be pretty, pretty intense. Uh, and it's it's likely to, yeah, show power and, and yeah, dominate Wait, over. Wait, male, male? Oh, yeah. Male, male. They'll do, again, they'll do it with juveniles of both sexes. Uh, they will use their noses to, um, you know, poke around a bit. What? Yeah. Yep. Dolphins have been, dolphins are a randy bunch and wow. pretty aggressive with their sexual displays. And, yeah. and we probably know that because we've observed it, but we're just guessing then about the blue whale. Correct. And again, so we, we rely on things like anatomy to help inform, you know, what we think is going on. And so if we go back to the right whale, where we know there's all of this activity, they're having lots of sex, and we often see what's known as these surface active groups. And this is where you see a female come up to the surface and she's surrounded by males and they're, they're rolling and frolicking. And it's pretty clear that there's sexual activity going on. They have the Atlantic... Male Atlantic right whales, North Atlantic right whales, have the largest testes on the planet in total volume as well as proportionally. So they're much smaller than a blue whale, and their package is about 10 times bigger. It is a half ton testes each. One ton, 1,000 kilograms wow. of sperm factory going on inside these, these males. They are also... <laughs> The only species of whale where we have literally witnessed a double penetration. So one female rolled onto her back, and researchers were out in the field. They were tagging these animals. They were watching. Another male came up on onto one side of her. And <laughs> Philip Clapman, Dr. Philip Clapman, is one of the researchers who relayed this story to me. He was on the boat, and he said, you know, someone yelled out, penis, and this is you know, somewhat common that they'll see, you know, sort of this activity and this giant pink phallus swoops up and enters the female. But then someone went, oh my God, there's another one. <laughs> and they looked out and sure enough, this other male had come up on her other side and looped his giant. So you've got basically like the golden arches of pink penises entering into this female. And these are like eight foot long schlongs, right? This is big tackle. But when you have double penetration like that, a true threesome, that is about as intense sperm competition as you can get. So that's why they make these huge, huge testes and are producing all this sperm because they're literally having to compete with other males at the same time. But wait, but the female has two vaginas? Nope, just one. But so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> just one. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty intense. It just, uh, they just sort of squeezed their way in there. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it is. The other thing that's really cool with whales um, is that the females' reproductive tracts are really diverse. And this is work being done by uh, a researcher named Dr. Sarah Mesnick and her colleague, Dara Orbach. And they've been studying whales and dolphins, so some of the smaller ones, and looking at the shape and sort of structures of, of the female. And they're finding that in some female species, the... Uh, 
the vaginas are very, they're like tubes. They're just really straight. They're really simple, easy for sperm to get from point A to point B. Other ones are an obstacle course. There's flaps and folds and blind alleys, dead ends. I mean, you name it, all sorts of trickery going on. <laughs> when, Why? Yeah. So, so they're trying to figure this out. And, and uh, Dr. Mesnick said to me at one point, she said, when I, when she first opened, so they do a lot of this study through dissection. And when they first looked at one of these structures, the reproductive tract, she's like, oh my God, like how does a sperm find the cervix without a GPS? This is insane. So they think, and again, this is all being sorted out right now, but again, this is a way that a female would actually maintain some control over who is getting to her egg in a system where she's basically being forced to mate with a lot of males. Like if she, if she can't not engage in those sexual advances. Again, if the males are pretty aggressive and are forcing copulations, this is sort of evolution's way of the female having a little bit to say after sex. So do you think she can control these flaps? Like, can she actually shut that stuff we, down? We, it, it's possible. Again, this is like really new research. They're, they're still coming up with it, but they think through potentially muscular contractions or secretions that there may be ways that the female is having a bit more influence um, than, than we you know, than we think. Or it could just be that it's a, another level of selection in that only the strongest, toughest sperm that can actually like survive and check out all these different pathways and find their way through this maze actually get there. That might be a way of screening for hardier sperm, which would have, you know, better genes mm -hmm. and so on. So it's still up in the air exactly how it works. But given that all whales don't have this, it's likely that it it serves a purpose, you know, for for these females, and it's likely that it's in these systems where they are unable to control who's gaining access to their bodies, you know, initially. And uh, as Sarah says, you know, home field advantage is for the females at the end of the day. That last, whether it's a few centimeters or a couple inches or a few feet, in the case of you know a giant whale, she she gets to say, you know, what's going on in there. Hi, this makes me wonder if some of our GOP spokespeople are actually marine <laughs> biologists. <laughs> Maybe they're not. Anyway, uh, that's a total aside. Um, all right, so... We have some idea then, maybe, about what's going on in some of the biggest animals yes. in the ocean. Yes. Um, and, of course, they have the problem that there's fewer of them. So, yes. you know, that's hard to find. But they're big. Mm -hmm. We also have the problem that they're the tiniest animals in the ocean also yeah. have to mate. Right. Is there, is it, you know, is, is there plight easier because there's so many of them or do they also have similar problems? They have similar problems too. And copepods are a great example of this. So copepods are tiny little crustaceans, cousins of shrimp or crabs that really are a, a major link in the food chain between the microscopic plants, the, the phytoplankton that fuel the ocean's food web. They link between them and sort of the higher fish, sort of fish larvae, crab larvae, that then feed the fish, that then feed us. So they're a really, really critical link. But they're tiny. They range from the size of a poppy seed to, you know, maybe your thumbnail. So they have to find one another and really reproduce in enormous numbers in order to maintain their populations and, we know, to maintain all the animals that feed on them. So wait, they have to 
ha- they have to have enormous numbers of children, each one of them each, because the ocean is so vast and they there's so much ground to cover? Well, we know that they're having that many. We know that they're having tons of, of babies and being able to reproduce in huge numbers simply because so many animals are relying on them. Mm. So when you have something the size of a whale that eats copepods and is sustained by copepods, which are so tiny, there just has there has to be enormous abundances in order for them to be able to do that. So they lay um, a, a fair number of eggs. So they are pretty um, fecund, as, as we would say. But they also have to be, the males are going around and, and mating with as many females as they can. Now, in some species, a female will only mate once. In other species, she'll mate multiple times. But if you imagine, these animals are looking for each other in in this giant ocean, and they, for some species, only have a few months or a few weeks to live. Because that's their lifespan, yeah. right? So the, yeah. So the clock is ticking. They got to find somebody fast. quick. Yeah. So they do what a lot of us do when we're looking for a mate is they go to a singles bar. Now, in the ocean, the copepod singles bars are basically these these very thin sections of water that sit between two layers that... And, and the way I like to describe it is instead of thinking of the ocean as a giant uniform pool of blue, it's actually more like a layer cake. And there's sections of the water that are warmer and colder, saltier, fresher, and they swirl around. And, and where these two bodies of water will meet, they stack up. And this layer forms in between that we call a boundary layer. Water does not like to cross that boundary. If it's warm, it stays in the warm layer. If it's cold, it stays in the cold layer. So you actually get a very stable sort of thin area. And the copepods can feel this. They're very sensitive. So for them, when they when they go through different bodies of water, these different layers, it's as if we were feeling silk and then corduroy and then cotton. Like it's very clear to them, like, okay, we're moving along here. So they can detect when they're in these layers. And there's two things that they do. One is they will aggregate, they'll swim up to find one of these layers and then they'll stay in that layer. So that helps concentrate their numbers and make it more likely for them to bump into each other. The second thing is copepods being really small, water feels and acts completely differently for them. So when they swim through the ocean, it's as if we were swimming through a pool of molasses. Water is thick, it's sticky, and they literally are digging their way through which is really kind of hard for us to conceive, but it's, it's what happens when you get to life lived at very, very small scales. So as they dig their way through, especially the females, it leaves, it leaves a trail. It leaves a, like, like footprints in the snow. And there's wonderful researcher named Dr. Jeanette Yen, who's down at uh, Georgia Tech. She studies copepod movement. She says the females leave these sort of em- envelopes and then they spread on many species will spritz some pheromone in there. So it's like she's leaving this scented love trail for the males to come and encounter. And again, because this is happening in these boundary layers where the water is very, very stable, um, it, it allows for those trails to last a little bit longer. So again, that increases the odds that the male is going as he's swimming around to hit one of those trails. And then he goes through this wonderful sort of acrobatic spin process where he'll he'll spin around and he'll hone in on the direction based on that gradient of of the trail and know how to follow her and he'll just zoom up the trail and then he tries to sort of jump onto the female sometimes the female is willing sometimes she's not uh, there's definitely cases where we see the female jumping out of the way or where when the, when the poor male finally gets onto her it's like a bucking bronco ride and she's doing everything she can to shake him off we have no, not sure if this is, you know, her way of like testing his 
strength and endurance or whether she really just does not want this to happen. Uh, and then, but then if all goes well and he hangs on, he'll insert, you know, his, his uh, manly parts into her and, and transfer a sperm packet and her eggs will down the road get fertilized and off they go. And as soon as he's done that, he then goes on to look for another female. And then again, the female, depending on the species, that might be it. She just gets one one shot and she's done. Or some some females will mate again if they have um, the, within that species. So in in your book, you you have a great analogy for how we can put this into perspective about you know just this how difficult this task is. You talk about standing at the top of a building. Yeah. So so they can so these males their their ability to sense where these females are is amazing. It's as if we were standing on top of a giant like 60-story building and being able to kind of sniff the scent of the perfume of your date walking by on the street below and then being able to just dive bomb basically down on into her and and get the job done. That's amazing. And it, and it kind of makes me wonder if you're a marine biologist and you're studying these species, like do you just hang out in the ocean and you're diving gear <laughs> and like, like how do you find like how do you observe this yeah so it's it's really neat so again dr yen her lab has some really cool setups and so she'll collect copepods from the wild and bring them back and they'll run all sorts of experiments and and i it's amazing what she can do. She'll set up these cameras, slow motion cameras, because this all is, again, happening really fast. When you see a male hone in on a female, it's um, it's like lightning. You know, he just, boom, sinks in, on that, sinks in on that trail. He's wasting no time. But she has wonderful slow motion cameras that capture and are able to, to show um, if you were to put... Um, you know, like a trail of a female through the water. She'll she'll mimic that trail and that scent using pheromones. And then the male, they can record when he's swimming what happens as soon as he hits one of those trails and watch how he zooms up it and how he's sensing it. So many of these things with animals like copepods, you can have it in the lab. For big whales, like we were talking about, the blue whales, much of it is done, again, through observation from the surface to the best of our ability and for species that are you know, frolicking openly like right whales, we can see that. For things like blue whales, it's more indirect. So for example, by looking at their anatomy, we can t tell that for blue whales, they're probably not as, um, as much sperm competition going on. Again, their testes aren't proportionally super, super enormous. Their penises are the largest on the planet, but they're about 12 feet, but proportionally is about the same as us. It's not, you know, too ridiculous. But we also, one of the neat things that we've seen with blue whales is through their song. So that's a huge way that we understand a lot of information about whales is because they sing. The males, just the males sing. So they're all Barry Manilow. They are all Barry Manilows. And in blue whales, they're actually starting to get more like Barry White, which is really fun. So what's happened is, again, as you mentioned, blue whales, there are not that many, but there used to be far fewer. Uh, back in the 20th century, they were severely overhunted. Um, in the Southern Ocean, 95% of the population was wiped out. At that time, a male's job or primary concern was just finding a female, just basically calling out as loudly as he could to try to figure out where she is. Now, what's happened over the last few decades is we've noticed that the whale songs, the males are singing lower and lower and lower. They're dropping the pitch of their song, and it's dropped by over 30%, which is a pretty big shift. Mm. And this has happened worldwide. 
And we're still trying to figure out what's going on, but some of the researchers who are studying this have said, well, you know, the population of blue whales has actually started to recover. It's a great conservation story that we put this moratorium on, on whaling in place, and lo and behold, if you don't kill them, they start to breed and reproduce and come back, which is great. And with that recovery, now it's likely that the blue whales don't have to work quite as hard to find the females, but they're now having to probably start to compete. And we know that across the animal kingdom, deeper voices are sexier. Across the animal kingdom? Across, from koalas to blue whales to us, females go for a deeper male voice. And this is because a larger male can produce a deeper sound. And in general, bigger was better in terms of protecting your young or a territory. For us, I think it's just a, a, a sort of an evolutionary leftover that we we haven't gotten rid of yet. Because you're, you're just walking around the size matter. Yeah. Right? I, well, see, that's the thing, right? <laughs> Success in size for us is a little trickier these days. So, but it, it seems to hold, and we think that it's a way for these blue whale males to show off their stature, and that can be either to intimidate competing competing males. Or it can be that they're trying to attract the females and sort of convince them that they're the guy who's who's got the biggest biggest brawn yeah. and, and is the one that she should go for. So I, I would have thought, you know, not knowing anything about blue whales and how they <laughs> reproduce, um, that maybe the lower frequencies travel further uh, the way they do, you know, like you can hear the bass yes. in the party next door. So but- it gets, sound in the sea is, the physics get a little bit funky and It's true that a lower tone does travel further, but it's also quieter. Mm. So there's sort of this sweet spot where a slightly higher pitch actually has more volume. And to be honest, I had (laughs) a wonderful professor named John Hildebrand, um, who's an expert in whale sound, explained this to me multiple times and and walked me through it. And I will uh, defer to him to explain (laughs) How, how that exactly works. But that's that was part of the trick is that they likely were projecting at this slightly higher pitch because in, in the ocean it actually did project farther because it was louder, hmm. uh, which, so, which is yeah, a little maybe, counterintuitive. But maybe the distance are so great that you have to worry about dissipation, mm-hmm. you know, that you, yeah, yeah absolutely. so interesting. So, all right. So we've kind of talked about the problem of finding a mate. Yes. Um, we've talked a little bit about some of the solutions that, you know, like now I sort of, any anytime I want to say that, you know, I, you know, somebody has big balls, I'm just going to say that's a right whale, right? <laughs> a, he's, yeah. he's stacked he's like a right a, whale. stacked like a right whale. Um, it's and, quite a compliment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what I want to talk a little bit more about, let's, you know, get it down into the sex. So how do these... You know, what are some of the most interesting stories that you heard about, about how these animals solve, you know, this reproductive problem? How, how do they actually have sex? Well, there's there's two basic ways. You have internal and external, right? So internal fertilizers are like us. There's going to be some sort of a male uh, reproductive organ or part that inserts into or onto the female. And then there is external. So we can't have, this doesn't happen on land, but in the sea, because there's all this lovely warm salt water environment, sperm and eggs don't dry out. So species can just release their gametes, the sperm and the egg, into the water and the fertilization happens outside their body, which basically means sex in the ocean can be an out-of-body experience, which is pretty neat. Now for internal fertilization, you have a whole range of approaches. This is species such as the whales that are mammals. It's also sharks. 
And it's also things like squid. So with, um, let's take sharks, for example. Sharks are very cool reproductive strategy. They have a really diverse, you can have sharks that lay eggs, you have sharks that have live birth and have umbilical cords and the little pups are born with belly buttons, which is really neat. Um, whole range, but basically the copulation part looks pretty similar, we think, across species. And again, we've only seen this in a handful of species, and a lot of it is deduced from what we know about their anatomy. But sharks are double hung. The males are born with two claspers. Claspers are um, organs that are are, um, at the base of the tail. They're extensions of the pelvic fin. And these are, they're called intermittent organ is the scientific name for all penises, anything that sticks into the female to deliver the sperm. And so claspers and sharks, because they develop out of the, the two fins, there's two of them. And they have this really cool ejaculation system that's just wild. So imagine that you have a cigar. And it's a rolled up fin. <laughs> yeah, like where this is going. <laughs> right. So picture a great white shark. This thing's going to be about three feet long when okay. it's, you know, a full a mature adult. And it's basically an extension of the fin that's rolled um, sort of like a burrito almost. And it just creates a groove for the sperm to slide down. So unlike a, a mammal penis where you actually have um, the urethra and the sperm going all the way down to the tip and out, in sharks, the opening where the sperm comes out is up at the base of the tail. So you have to get the sperm from the base of the tail and run it down this grooved clasper and out into the female. And the clasper inserts into the female, but there's there's this sort of pathway of this sort of drip system where the sperm slides down the clasper to get to the female. In order to increase the flow and the pressure, sharks have this internal giant sack that runs from their tail all the way up to their gills by their head. And they'll fill up this sack on the one side that they're approaching the female with water. There's a tiny little pore and using muscular contractions, they can inflate the sack like a balloon and it sucks all this water in. And then what they do is the male will approach the female He will bite onto her pectoral fin, which is like the wing-like fin that sticks out, rolls her over, and then he takes his clasper and inserts it into her genital opening. And then he squeezes, and he squeezes those muscles around that water sac, and it shoots the water out by the pore where the sperm is coming out and flushes it down. So it's basically like having this giant super soaker water gun that he's spritzing to kind of increase the flow of his sperm so that it can run down the clasper into the female. Wow. Nobody else has an, you know, ejaculates like sharks do. And it it works very well. It gets the sperm up into, into inside the female. And then again, it'll progress either to fertilize eggs or it'll fertilize a live, live growing young. So sharks are pretty bad (laughs) in how they get that done. But there are also sharks that, you know, practice immaculate conception. There are. There are. So this was really neat. And this is the thing that's so cool with Sex in the Sea is it is just the research is exploding. So much of what we're finding out is happening because of new technology and new science that's occurring literally as we speak. So just this summer, so about six months ago, researchers for the first time 
we're able to use a new genetic technique to go out and sample an endangered species of shark called a, what's well, a ray, actually, a small tooth sawfish. It's not a fish. <laughs> it's actually a ray, which is a cousin of a shark. This species has been overhunted. It's the one that has that really long nose with the teeth along the side. So mm -hmm. it's been hunted for, as a curio, um, people liked having those swords as sort of a tokens in their homes. So severely overfished. It's also used in shark fin soup. So it's now under protection, but researchers have been trying to understand what the population numbers are and how they reproduce. And one way they do this is by looking at paternity and maternity tests. So just like in humans, how you can test somebody's DNA and trace it back to who the father is or who the mother is, you can do the same thing in sharks. And these researchers have used this new genetic technique and they were taking samples of some of the females that are being caught through this program to, to look at and, and test the species and see how they're doing. And what they found was there were younger sharks, a new generation of sharks, whose DNA had no male component. There was hmm. nothing from a male contributed to, to the genetic blueprint of these individuals, which is really weird. Yeah. Yeah. So it turns out the females, these mamas, who are probably having trouble finding a mate, got tired of waiting around, and they're able to, using just their own DNA, there's a process called parthenogenesis, which basically means female reproduction, only female reproduction. And it's this, it's a little complicated, but basically the egg is able to split off and there's this thing called a polar body. And that polar body becomes a matching set of DNA and the two, two halves fuse and form a unique genetic blueprint, but it's just with the mother's DNA. There's no male input. So they're just females then. They, they can females give birth to daughters, but that's it. The daughters yep. you know, are still going to have the problem. So we might actually get to a point where the entire species is female. So this is the thing, right? Yeah. So in nature, we know other animals, lizards and, and a couple other animals we know can do this trick, right? The females can make babies on their own. But they tend to only be one sex, and that depends on, on the sec how the chromosomes line up. But in sharks, it's always females. Females make only females. So that's a problem. You're going to be, after a while, that's not going to work. The other issue is that even though there's some mixing, it's still only mixing of mother's DNA. So your diversity is lower. You're mm -hmm. not actually getting the benefit of, that sex provides in terms of bringing two different unique genetic blueprints and remixing for a whole novel new you know, DNA. So it's, it's a good stopgap seeing that these females are actually reproducing and is such an endangered species is actually probably a good thing for the short term. It's putting more individuals out there. Over the long term, we want them having sex. We, we need for them to be able to find mates and reproduce in the way that's a little bit more traditional. So it's it's sort of good news in that it could help get over the gap. And especially for the um, for the sawfish, the protections are in place now. So the population does look like it's starting to come back. You know, there's no fishing allowed. They're they're you know highly, highly protected. So this could be a good stopgap. But long term, every species, even if they can reproduce through parthenogenesis, every species always eventually turns back to sex because it brings these other benefits for the long-term survival. <laughs> so we've sort of talked about the problem of finding mates. We've talked about some ways in which uh, these animals have devised uh, interesting ways of actually reproducing. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I wanted to talk a little bit about why we should care. And, you know, the ocean is vast. It needs to be populated with fish because we eat the fish, right? Mm -hmm. And it has a whole host of other benefits. But you tell one story in the book that made me really kind of feel sad for some species of fish who have, you know, are really trying to reproduce in major ways. So these are the fish that are having orgies. Yeah. And that essentially makes them vulnerable to fishing. Yes, absolutely. So again, we were talking about internal versus external fertilization. And for fit, most fish species, as well as corals and sea urchins and tons of other animals in the ocean, they release their sperm and eggs into the water. It's actually how sex first began. That's the oldest form. And when you do that, you imagine it's, again, a big ocean. So you have this problem of dilution and that the sperm and eggs might not meet up. One way to overcome this is to make sure you're bringing a whole bunch of animals together, grouping them up in tight small balls of fish that then all release their gametes at the same time. So it's basically a giant orgy. In scientific terms, we call this a spawning aggregation. It's a little less racy, but it's basically an orgy. And species from tuna to jack to snapper to grouper that we all love to eat reproduce in this fashion. And what happens is through seasonal cues and light cues, they all sort of know where to go and they kind of aggregate on these very specific locations at the same time and place every year. And often it's only once a year that they'll do this. So right now, like on Valentine's Day, I think the full moon is in about another week. The Nassau grouper will be moving into into location, probably starting now as we speak. And they all huddle up and often it's around sort of a, a big reef outcrop or promontory. And there'll be about three or four days of a total bacchanalia. And they just spawn and spawn and spawn. Wait, it's Mardi Gras. It's total. It's my exactly. It's Mardi Gras, and they know their timing, and they they do this, and it and it works really well to boost fertilization rates. But the same cues that allow the fish to find their other fellow fish are the same cues that allow fishers to find the fish. And you imagine that for fishers, this is an unbelievable opportunity, a very lucrative opportunity to fish out all the biggest individuals of a population that's normally highly dispersed. Nassau grouper are extremely aggressive territorial fish. It's very rare that you actually find more than one, you know, in any one location on a reef. You have to sort of search all over the place to find them because they have these home territories. But here, once a year, you have 4,000 fish, literally the entire breeding population of one island that'll gather around one spot. And we know this, the, there's a project called the Grouper Moon Project, which is um, run by scientists out of Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the Reef Environment Education Foundation. And they're working really closely with the Cayman Islands government. And they've set up listening stations around the island and they've put, they're called hydrophones uh, all around the island. And then they've tagged fish with um, little tags that send out a ping. So they can literally track the movement of these fish. And they have found that little little Cayman Island, it literally is every single adult fish goes to this one spot and makes this one giant aggregation. And about six or seven years ago, fishers discovered this giant um, spawning aggregation. And within about a year, two years, a handful of fishers wiped that population down to half. They took out half the fish. Wow. So, and these aren't using big factory trawlers. This is, you know, artisanal hook and line, you know, small fishing pressure, but it can do a a lot of damage very quickly. So these researchers have been working really hard to try to say, you know, 
when we fish on spawning aggregations, you are doing two things. One, you're likely taking way more fish than you realize out of the population because when you're surrounded by thousands and thousands of fish that are all spawning at the same time, it's really hard to get a sense that you're actually reducing that population because it just looks like there's so many fish there. So there's this false sense of abundance. So that's the first thing that makes it tricky. The second thing is the fishing activity itself is likely disrupting a lot of the behaviors that are really critical to cue the spawning. So while we talk about the orgy as something where they all get together and just spawn, there, there is coordination. Often a female is swimming around and she'll make, uh, especially in groupers, she'll make these giant arcs where she goes up in the water column and the leading males will trail in after her and she releases her eggs and then they'll release their sperm. And so there's, there's certain behaviors and cues that are likely going on for these fish to understand exactly when to release their eggs and who they're going to, you know, jump in the next, you know, (laughs) jump into bed with next. Yeah, totally. And it's like, I mean, it looks like geysers of fish just going off. And so when we fish though, when you introduce noise from the boat or the hook and line and all these things, it, it likely is disrupting some of those cues. So we're probably not only taking fish out, but reducing the amount of successful reproductive activity that's happening even in those fish who are left. So I like to say that one of the easiest things that we could do, even though nothing is ever easy, is simply no more fishing on spawning grounds. I mean, it's basically like, if <laughs> what is it? Don't come a knocking when the bags are rocking, right? Like this is when they're getting it on. Let them do what they're going to do. And you're going to have an increase in population that then the rest of the year as a fisher you'll benefit from. And certain um, countries and regions are now starting to put this into effect, realizing that this is really the the crux of where the next generation of fish is coming from. But it's, you know, it's a challenge in the sense that these, these fishers, this is their livelihood. So we can't just um, sort of cut them off and not not try to lend some support. So it has to be a coordinated effort that allows some social support to the fishers, provides them either alternative livelihoods or at least some um, stopgap for them to get through this time of adjustment until hopefully those populations recover. So Mm. it's, um, you know, it gets complicated, but in terms of the conservation side, it's really easy to enforce a closure of a spawning aggregation because, again, we know when and where they occur and it's limited in time and space. So resource-wise, it's not that hard to really get good closures in place. And it's really important that we do so. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the research that's exploding now in terms of understanding how marine life reproduces is, you know, a critical step towards conserving it. It is. And it's a really exciting time because I think the technology is is helping us to understand so much more and the research funds, um, especially these long-term studies to really understand what is happening kind of <laughs> up and inside these more intimate, intimate acts. It's really important that we continue that work and some of them are just starting to come to fruition. There's There's been some wonderful studies on sharks and again, Dr. Mesnick studies on whales. That's been going on for years just to get enough specimens and understand what these whale vaginas look like, right? This is not easy work to do. So supporting these long-term efforts and then also supporting the technology and new techniques like these genetic techniques is is really sort of allowing us to lift the veil and uh, do more than just sneak a peek at, at what's happening down there. It sounds like this is a great example of how understanding the basic biology can lead to really you know, direct changes and applications. Yeah, absolutely. So one one piece that we didn't talk about um, is a lot of animals in the ocean are sex changers, 
right? And many of them get together and do these these group spawnings as well. And part of what they're doing when they gather this once a year is they're actually assessing out how many males and how many females are there. And for example, parrotfish will do this. They are uh, sex changers. They start as females and then they transition to males. And this is because they reproduce in harems. So when they're small, it makes sense to be a female and be able to spawn with the male. And then as you get big enough, and brawny enough, you can transition and become a male and take over a harem and gain all the reproductive rewards of having multiple females who you're spawning with. But this also means that when we're fishing, if we're fishing all the biggest fish, you're also taking out all the males, right? So you're Mm. skewing the sex ratio. Without knowing that these fish are sex changers, we can't put management into place that says, hey, we need to not only be counting the number of fish left, but we need to be sexing those fish and making sure that we're not disturbing the ratio. Um, You know, we we have to have the knowledge that this is a sex changing population to know to do that. And we're starting to get that knowledge and be aware that these are things we need to look for and design better management so that we can accommodate these strategies and help sort of boost their productivity rather than, you know, stifle, snuff it out. Wow. Well, I want to wish all our listeners a happy Valentine's Day and remind them um, that Mara's book, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connection with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep. There is something for everyone in this book, really. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And it just, you know, highlights the fact that we as humans are pretty boring. Yeah, I, I will. I will say that there's a lot to learn and a lot to play with. Should you choose to take the be- the book back to your bedroom? But also, I want to just warn: there is a, you do have a, a warning here at the beginning of the book yes. um, about that we should <laughs> we shouldn't try uh, some of these ideas at home without the proper marine biology support. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mara, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. This was really really fun. I guess I should talk in a really low voice like this going forward to attract potential mates. Uh, that's not that sexy. <laughs> I know it's not sexy, <laughs> but I'm going to continue talking in a low voice. All right. I was really, uh, that was, basically, I was trying to listen to this at work, and I was I, I was almost turning red. And that's a feat for me, for people who know me, because I'm pretty brown for me to turn red. <laughs> I still cannot get out the image of a half ton testes for a whale. A yeah. half ton. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, it's kind of mind boggling. And it's not, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing is it's not, it's not attached to a blue whale, right? It's not even the largest whale. I don't I don't know. <laughs> but there are, there are so many other great examples in the book. Like she talks about this other fish that has a detachable penis, reusable and detachable. Isn't that the name of some bad 90s song? <laughs> or band? Yes. Something like that. Yes. But I think what really caught me, you know, and, and, and left me really wondering at the end of her book is this notion that, you know, look, we have a problem in that we are overfishing so many species or we are affecting the habitats of so many species or we're going to lose so many species with climate change, with ocean warming, with acidification and all this kind of thing. So... We really should be studying how they reproduce because if we can, you know, enhance that or if we can prevent like that, she has that great simple example, like just don't fish them when they're having an orgy. (laughs) You know, like if it's just a couple of days a year, that seems like a really smart conservation regulation to put in place, you know, or, you know, if we understand how 
you know how how these um, how these fish reproduce, we can then maybe mimic that under conditions and and save some of these species that are potentially going to have a lot of trouble in the coming decades. I think that's going to be the lingering lesson from this. I have to admit, I haven't done much thinking about about uh, sex in the sea before this interview. Uh, but it, it still surprises me because I have the sanitized version of what reproduction looks like across species. And uh, when she was talking about how aggressive some of the, the reproductive habits can be, I was really surprised and thrown off. Like there is a real wide spectrum of how creatures reproduce here and it's beautiful in its own way. Yeah. And, you know, there's there there is a lot of evidence of sort of cruelty, as we would think of it in mother nature. Right. It's not just human beings you know, orcas play with baby dolphins and don't eat them and, you know, but cause them great physical harm. And there's all kinds of examples like that. And, and it's not just, of course, in the ocean world. Um, but yeah, that's the other thing that kind of underscored it for me is that, you know, we, we think of sex as a pleasurable thing and something that, you know, animals do because they want to and they've been biologically wired to want it because it's pleasurable. But for a lot of these species, obviously, it's probably not that fun. Well, I'm going to think differently next time I take a dip in the ocean, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, she, she actually opens the book with the line. I have to read it for you. It smells like sex. <laughs> anyway, I hope you had a good time. I had a good time with that interview. And to our listeners, happy Valentine's Day. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Anonymous. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own favorite sex stories from the sea, keep them clean, people, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Pescatarian Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.